0: Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In the 4th century BCE, the Macedonian Kingdom conquered all of Greece and eventually the known world. Leading this charge was an ambitious 20-something named Alexander. By the end of his life, he would be called the Great. But who was this figure? Where was his past? And what was his path to glory? On this, hour, Season 4 premiere, we discuss Alexander the Great, the master and ruler of the world. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and Wartime is back. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another season of Wartime. I'm your host, as always, Brady Kreitzer. On season four of the series, we're discussing game changers who they were, what they did, and why they still matter. As always, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady on my author's websites for news and events, bradykreitzer.com, and of course, your home for everything wartime on the web wartimepodcast.com. Season 4 is a new beginning for wartime, and I'm very excited about it. We've had a few months off, plenty of time to research, and plenty of time to share what we've all learned. Season 4 is going to be about game changers, the people who have changed their own worlds, and largely the world around us as well. The major figures of not just Western history, but world history. Some of these names you'll be very familiar with. People like today's episode, Alexander the Great. Others, you may not know much about, but that's why we're here. Now, I do have a few bits of news and information for you as we prepare for the new season of wartime, one of which is some personal news of my own. After much imploring by those around me, I finally caved and created a Facebook website for the show. In reality, it's also a, a website for me personally. The website is facebook.com slash Brady J. One word, Brady J. Kreitzer. The J is important to find it. It's a public page. If you go to facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer, you'll see all kinds of news and information about my career. My new books coming out like Hessians, Mercenaries, Rebels, and the War for British North America, released this May by West Home Publishing. Like my new television series, Battlefield Pennsylvania, airing on the Pennsylvania Cable Network, also available for you online. Links will be there. And of course, news about our little podcast. Uh, so, uh, facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. Please go there. Please like it. Uh, again, you hate to beg for likes, but it's the world we live in. Some people may do it more tactfully than I do. Uh, but... That's just sort of the way it is. So I'd appreciate your help if you go there and check that out. As always, you have a number of ways to reach me. Now the Facebook page is a new way to do it. One of the great things about that is you can communicate directly with us, and I respond to everybody. Uh, If you go there today, you'll see questions and prompts for new episodes of Season 4, Game Changers. Who do you want to see on the series? Listeners have already chimed in, and we're going to be doing episodes based on their recommendations. Now let's move forward and discuss one of, I think, the most interesting and fascinating characters in all of not just Western history, but world history, Alexander the Great. One thing you're going to find about episodes this season is that these are not necessarily biographical sketches of major figures. They just aren't. Biographical sketches, by their very nature, require a lot of tremendous detail, and literally every detail we have. You could take hours to do an episode on Alexander the Great in that regard. could take days, in fact. We aren't going to do that. Instead, we're going to uh, set up the world in which they live in so we can better understand how they change it. Alexander the Great is a really good example of, of how one person can have a major impact not only on European history or Middle Eastern history, but also Central Asian history and the history of the Indian subcontinent. A major figure. I think a great place to start. If we're going to talk about Alexander the Great, we want to talk about some of the things he's going to give us uh, in this episode of Wartime. There's a lot of legacies of Alexander the Great. Many of them have to do with things that were out of his control. That is to say, he became much more notable upon his death and the years after than in his own life. That being said, in the minds of most of the people who he ruled, he was the master and ruler of the known world. Alexander the Great would cross thousands upon thousands of square miles, and he would control all of them in the name of his homeland of Greece. But let's talk about Alexander the Great. Who is he? Where does he come from? And again, as I say in the intro, why should you care? These are all very relevant questions, and I think all ones that we're here on wartime to discuss. Alexander the Great is born in the year 356 BCE in the kingdom of Macedon. Now, before we get into Alexander's life, I want you to understand what Macedon is like and why it's so important. Remember in season two of Wartime, if you haven't listened, I'd encourage you to go back. It's a nice season, I'm very proud of it, and it's pretty popular uh, amongst listeners. Uh, but if you have listened, you recall that Greece is a very unique place in Europe and in the world in the fourth century BCE. It's a divided place. Greece as a nation does not exist. But Greekness is sort of a societal way of life. Greece itself is actually divided among many dozens of city-states. Some are monarchies, some are oligarchies, some are, believe it or not, democracies. But they're all very different. That being said, linguistically they're similar. Culturally they're very similar. We would call them all Greeks. However, there are major differences between what we call the Greek city-states that make their history long and storied, and again, one of the topics of Season 2 of Wartime in our study of the ancient world. In many ways, this episode could feel like a continuation of that. But we will make sure we keep the focus on Alexander himself, so we again stay with the format of the show. I think it's much more enriching and rewarding in that regard. Alexander the Great, again, comes from Macedon. That might not mean a lot to you, but it actually means a tremendous amount for Alexander and for his age. If you could visualize a map of Greece, ancient Greece, we'll have this on the Facebook page, why not increase a little bit of traffic. One of the things you'll notice about Macedon is that it's the northernmost or one of the northernmost city-states in Greece. It's very big, it's very vast, and geographically, it's a very different place. The geomorphology of land, I think, is very important. Geography is a major factor in history. Believe it or not, where you live, I feel, has a lot to do with how the world becomes what it is. That may be a little deterministic, but I think there's something to it. In the case of Alexander, there's no doubt. So what do I mean? Well, Greece itself is a beautiful place. If you've never been there, I would highly recommend it. But it's not exactly... Uh, a hospitable place for civilization to emerge. I mean, think of the hallmarks of civilization for us. You have long, low, flat-lying, sweeping plains, great for grazing horses, growing food, uh, building civilization. Greece doesn't really have that. Greece is a very mountainous place. It's a very rocky, craggy place. There are some low-lying plains, but they're in small amounts, and they're spread throughout the landmass. If you look at Macedon, however, in the far north, much more... On the European continent than on the uh, sort of peninsula style world of Greece, one of the things you'll see is that it has exactly those features very low lying flat plains, dense, rich, lush forests, not exactly a Mediterranean climate, not like the rest of Greece. Now, for most of Greek history, that really has a negative impact on Macedon standing in the world. The Athenians, these very enlightened, uh, democratic, virtuous people in their opinions, the Spartans, very steadfast, militaristic, uh, very severe people, all will look at the Macedonians as being somehow backwards, uh, or country folks, uh, or somehow beneath them socially and culturally. You hate to make this comparison because I love this place. But sort of the way a lot of Americans today would think of maybe some of the more isolated Appalachian pockets of our country. Places like West Virginia, places like Kentucky in the east, eastern Tennessee, uh, and places in the Ozark Plateau of Missouri. It's not a fair stereotype. It's a stereotype. That's what it is. It's not necessarily true. But a lot of people say things like redneck and hillbilly, and there's always... Uh, an element of inferiority tied into that, and again, I vacation a lot in in West Virginia, so I do take a little bit of umbrage to it. But that's a very good analogy of how the Greeks saw the Macedonians for most of Greek history. There was just something different about them that was inferior. Yes, they had tremendous natural resources, uh, but in terms of the great philosophy uh, and 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 ideology that that really permeated from Greece, the Macedonians just didn't have it. Well, let's fast forward to the year 356, the birth of Alexander. Suddenly, all of those very negative things in the minds of the Greeks about Macedon become very positive. Because you're dealing with Greece at the end of what we call the Peloponnesian Wars, a great Greek civil war, city-state versus city-state, Athenian and their allies versus the Spartans and their allies. And all of a sudden, uh, when Greece begins fighting itself, this is an opportunity for Macedon. What do I mean? It takes a very special type of person to look at a time of crisis and see not chaos and despair, but opportunity. And that's what the king of Macedon will do. The king of Macedon is named Philip II. Uh, He's very much a warrior king, and he's the father of Alexander, a man that will be Alexander the Great. When Philip II looks at Greece, tearing itself apart, limb from limb, distracted, uh, not doing what they mostly do, all of a sudden, Macedon is looking pretty good, because even though it's involved in the conflict, it's sort of viewed as an outsider, an outlier in the Greek world. And suddenly, all the things that the Greeks don't have, like for example, uh, large amounts of horses, large amounts of foodstuffs, all things you need, large wilderness areas for big, low, flat-lying plains. Again, all the things that Athens and Sparta and Thebes doesn't have, but that Macedon does suddenly become a very valuable asset to Philip II when he ultimately makes the decision to conquer all of them in their distracted state. Now, we talked about, and again, this is very important for Alexander's life, so I know it's not necessarily tied to a day-by-day biography of Alexander, but again, very influential and very important. We talked about how the Greeks fight. And it's almost all the same. We talked about the hoplite phalanx. If you've seen the film 300, and again, it's a movie, take it for what it is, it does show this very well. The hoplite phalanx, uh, each man wearing a panoply, a helmet, a, a shield, a spear, moving as one large unit. That's how they all fought. And because of that, battles between Greeks tended to be very long, very bloody stalemates. The system was so effective. If you're fighting someone who doesn't employ that, as far as an army maybe from the east, maybe from Persia, the hoplite phalanx is almost undefeated. But if you're fighting another hoplite phalanx, well, then there's going to be a lot of bumping and a lot of clashing, but not a lot to show for it. In this world, any small advantage you have will go a very long way. Now, because there aren't many lush forests in the south of Greece, where most of these city-states are, trees tend to be very short. And because of that, when you have short trees, you have short spears. Spears tended to be between six and eight feet long. And again, when everyone has virtually the same weapons in fighting in virtually the same formation, there's not a lot of room for success. What made Macedon so great? Well, remember, they had much larger forests. Larger forests mean larger spears. When Philip II invades Greece, again, you have armies fighting with spears between six to eight feet long. His soldiers have much longer spears, sometimes twice that length, sometimes three times that length. Again, bigger trees mean bigger spears. That may not seem like a very big deal, but in a world where any small advantage puts you over the top, it's a weapon of mass destruction. Philip II will conquer all of southern Greece, and again, we're making this very easy to set up Alexander's life, and he's named to be the Generalissimo of the League of Corinth. The League of Corinth is sort of a unified Greek uh, defense pact, uh, both defensive and offensive, and they put Philip II at the helm. Effectively, politically, this makes him the most powerful man in Greece, and it makes him what we could call the conqueror of the Greek city-states. This is the beginning of what we could think of as a Macedonian empire. Again, the hallmark of Greece has been division. Now, under Philip II of Macedon, it's unified. It's into this world we see Alexander the Great born. Alexander the Great studies under his father. He watches his father, very much a king who leads from the front. But he also, growing up as a child of a very wealthy and powerful man, studies under, you know, some figures you might be aware of, like, oh, I don't know, Aristotle. Imagine that. Aristotle, the Aristotle, one of the godfathers of Western thought training, tutoring, and discussing with Alexander every day. From Aristotle, Alexander picks up a huge education and a huge appreciation, I think, for history, military tactics, but I think more importantly, an an unquenchable curiosity about the world around him. He does differ from his teacher. Aristotle believes that all non-Greeks should be enslaved because they can't be trusted and because, again, they are inherently inferior but alexander doesn't believe that now who cares he's a teenager but think of that you have a man who someday will rule the known world who believes that greeks and non-greeks alike should be held on the same footing this will be a major contribution to the success of his empire but also one of the reasons for its very fast decline now alexander the great sets himself apart early on when his father conquers greece Alexander is commanding a large part of the army again as a teenager But he sets himself apart as a major military figure. Now, Alexander's mother is a woman named Olympias. And Olympias is, at the time, I think we could say Philip's primary love interest or primary beau. Problem is, you have to know a few things about Philip II. He's a hard drinker, he's a partier, he's a womanizer of the highest order. He'll soon get a divorce effectively, from Alexander's mother Olympias, and Alexander and his mother are forced to flee the capital city of Pella for a short time. Alexander will return, but many question in the absence if the young man had lost his position as heir. Well, upon Philip II's remarriage, this is a very important point, he's assassinated at a wedding. He's drunk, uh, really, I guess you would say hammered for all intents and purposes, and his guard is down. He's making a fool of himself. He's assassinated at that moment. And that makes Alexander the most powerful man in Greece. There is unchallenged authority in the eyes of Alexander. He is the one person to, to sort of inherit it all. But he understands the world in which he lives. And he has all of the people responsible for the assassination, as well as almost every male heir in his family, killed upon his we could say, coronation as leader of Greece. That's pretty brutal. And he does it because, again, he understands history and he understands uh, dynastic rise and fall in a very real way. When Alexander really blows up, he's not great yet, will be when he's named uh, the successor to his father as Generalissimo of the Corinthian League. Again, this is the military commander of all of Greece and also, really, we can say the political commander of all of Greece. Now, one of the dreams that Philip II had, especially as he was conquering Greece and and unifying it in many ways, was that he would not only unify Greece and conquer it, but he also dreamed of conquering what was the world's largest empire at the time. Uh, This was the Persian Empire. And again, if you haven't listened to season two, we do a few episodes on the Persian Empire. I encourage you to listen to them to understand really where they're coming from, what they're all about. But this is something that many Greeks have clamored for for a very long time, primarily because of what happened in the original Persian Wars about a century earlier. In those wars, again, Persia invades. And now we're talking about a 100 plus years later, people are beginning to remember the war a little differently. Now remember, nobody was actually at the war during that time. No one lives that long. But they had certain memories of it, maybe you could say misconceptions of it, that were very important uh, in, I think, the visualization and the the goals and aims of the Greek world at this point. It's sort of like the way Americans think of, I don't know, the Civil War, or maybe the way Brits think of the Napoleonic War. None of us were there, but we all have an idea of what it was like, right or wrong, And we certainly know how the power and the pride and the glory affected our own world. Again, this is a very human thing to sort of mythologize the past, to romanticize the past. It's nothing new to us. We're not the first ones to do it. We won't be the last. I imagine someday there will be a group of people sitting around talking about the golden age of podcasting. I doubt it. At any rate, this is what was going on in Greece. And part of this called for an invasion of Persia. This seems like a big task. To give you an idea of what Persia is at the time, of course it's all of modern-day Iran, but also most of the modern-day Middle East, including Egypt. It's almost all of Central Asia, all the way to India. These are states like Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and the like. Again, this is a Herculean, no pun intended, task. But the Persian Empire isn't what it used to be. The Persian Empire, though it's vast and though it controls millions of people, is very weak. It's weakly connected and it's weakly controlled. The emperor is a man named Darius, and Darius is not terribly powerful. Again, he bases his, his, his rule out of modern Iran uh, at places like Persepolis and Susa, but he doesn't really have an effective way of controlling life on the ground in cities like Jerusalem, uh, in areas like Egypt, and certainly not further east. So when Alexander looks at this as a student of Aristotle, He believes that, although it's a tall task, Persia can and will be conquered. And he sets off to do so. Now, if you're keeping score at home, I want you to calculate this. Alexander is 22 years old in the year 334 when he begins his invasion of Persia. He takes with him an enormous and massive Greek army. The reality is, it's about 50,000 men by any standard metric. That's a large force, especially in the ancient world. And he has ahead of him the largest empire in history, effectively, at the time. To think that in less than a decade he would conquer all of it gives you some sense of why Alexander of Macedon or Alexander of Macedonia becomes known as Alexander the Great. So, what does he do? In the year 335, he begins his campaign largely by fighting enemies at home in Greece. But by 334, He now moves into Asia. His first point of attack mirrors the way that Xerxes attacked uh, in the Greco-Persian Wars, again, crossing into Asia Minor, what we could call today Turkey. When he's there, he's at the fringe of the Persian world. He's at the part of the Persian world where Greek and Persian life tends to blend. And again, we talked about some of these Ionian Greek city-states who are beholden to Persian control, like, for example, Miletus and others. When he crosses into that realm, he fights the first major battle uh, of his campaign. And this is maybe the campaign to end all campaigns at a place called Granicus. Some call this the Battle of Granicus River. Either one is acceptable. What you need to know is Persian forces are no match for the hoplite phalanx of the Greeks. Alexander believed the invasion of Persia would be easy. So far, he's right. I will tell you, uh, in a very, I think, uh, general way, Alexander will need to fight three battles to conquer the entire Persian Empire. There are smaller battles in between, I'll be very frank with you, but these are three major battles, and Granicus was relatively easy for him. It didn't do much to slow down his army. Now, one of the things you have to get used to when you deal with Persian emperors and Persian armies in the ancient world is the fact that, They have a huge empire, which means they have a huge population, which means they have a tremendous amount of resources and people to draw from in terms of a conscript draft to take the field of battle. But these are by no means professional soldiers. These are by no means a unified army. Uh, They're Egyptians. They're Persians. uh, They're Indians. uh, They're uh, Babylonians, and so on and so forth. Syrians. Uh, and and like. So you have a whole melting pot of people, and that makes for a wonderful culture and great history, but not necessarily a tremendous army. The Greeks have almost nothing but professional soldiers. So whenever they meet, it's a nasty affair that tends to end very quickly. Again, when the hoplite phalanx fights a force that is not unified and is not disciplined, it's often a very quick battle. Alexander will move through what we call the modern Levant, places like Syria, places like Israel, uh, places like Egypt. And again, he continues to find success. He has another battle at a place we'll call Issus. And again, it's another major victory. Alexander will move into Egypt with relatively little resistance. And this is when a very interesting part of the story takes hold. Again, you'll know this Uh, from earlier seasons of wartime about me as a historian. Battles are great. Battles are important. Studying them is very, very vital to understanding an event. But in a 45 minute podcast, I always believe it's more important to understand the social causes that lead to the battle rather than the battle itself. There's a lot of great military history podcasts out there, and I'm not dissing that. It's just not my thing. So I really want you to understand Alexander's conquest of Egypt to get a real sense of who he is. One of the things about Alexander, and I mentioned this earlier, is that he is incredibly inquisitive. He's very curious. Uh, I wouldn't go so far to say that he's a uh, scholarly general. He is a respected general with a great education, but he is endlessly fascinated by the world around him. He was interested in all the different Greek city-states, and of course you can imagine moving into southwest Asia, he'd be uh, really, really sort of ensconced, and and I think... Um, Um, enthralled by those communities as well. One of them is Egypt, maybe more so than any other. Alexander will fall in love with Egypt. He sees the pyramids. He sees the history. Again, we've talked about all these things in season two of wartime, and he wants to know more. I mean, the fact that you're listening to this podcast right now, and that I'm making it, Uh, really kind of shows, I think, that we're all sort of uh, akin to Alexander. We know what's in his mind. We know that curiosity and history and a love and the study of the field is sort of a fire that that encompasses your body. Alexander will feel that way about Egypt. He spends a lot of time in Egypt. He establishes a new capital city in Egypt. He calls it, very modestly, I might add, Alexandria. And it won't be the last one. Uh, But he really, again, can't get enough of this very foreign culture he begins to have his men address him as pharaoh rather than generalissimo. And that's an interesting twist for them. Again, they are Greek, and these aren't exactly the affluent Greek. I mean, a lot of these people are the very poorest of Greeks in some cases. Uh, and they're very proud to be Greek, and really all they know is Greece. And to address their king, maybe now their emperor, as, as pharaoh, it doesn't sit well with them. And this is only a trend that's going to build. But while Alexander's in Egypt, he spends some months there. Uh, He visits a lot of oracles. One thing you'll see about Alexander is, if there is a local soothsayer in any way, uh, like the oracle Delphi in Greece, she told him he was invincible. He believed it. Uh, Or other sort of, again, fortune tellers that are culturally significant, like in Egypt. Uh, He wants to visit them. He actually visited an oracle in the far western desert of Egypt. And she told him uh, that he would conquer the world but likely never return home. For him, you could imagine, just that first part was probably enough to make him pretty excited. And again, uh, this is long-standing tradition that comes down from, uh, maybe you could say, much later sources than as historians were comfortable with using. But Alexander the Great, again, falls in love with this world. And I hate saying that because, again, falls in love is a cliche, but there really is something to it. At any rate, in a matter of, what, two years or less, uh, Alexander the Great conquers all of the western portion of the Persian Empire. All that's left between him and the heart of Persia itself, modern Iran, is what we think of today as Iraq. And it's there that we'll see his most successful battle yet. One of the ways the Persians uh, utilized new technologies and connectivities to make their empire better to manage And again, this is long before what we were talking about. The Persian Empire we're discussing is very much in decline or maybe uh, the result of a very sudden decline. Uh, It's a very weak and fragile empire. One of the ways the Persians made it easier to govern all that land was by connecting a series of highways or roads that would make everything very accessible. Little did they know that they were actually building, again, a major superhighway that would lead Alexander the Great directly into the heart of their world. Alexander the Great will move through the great cities uh, of Mesopotamia, Um, cities today, unfortunately, that are being destroyed by a a group of radicals uh, in the Middle East calling themselves the Islamic State. He'll move through these ancient cities, uh, and again, he'll see cultures he could never imagine. He sees leadership flee. He sees the history of those positions of power, and he absorbs them. When he enters Babylon, for example, he says, this city is my new capital. And his men say, what about the other capitals you left behind? The ones in Greece and in Egypt? He says, well, I'm the king. I say we can have more than one capital if we want. Hey, it's good to be king. But again, he completely falls for these places. He begins to dress as the king of Babylon would dress. He begins to take on the significant title of the king of Babylon. He begins to add these titles to his own formal title. By the end of this campaign, it's going to be very long and and show the absurdity, I think, of all of it. But his men are fighting and dying uh, for Greece. And they're thousands of miles from Greece. And they see their leader not carrying the Greek flag, so to speak, but almost picking up whatever flag is next ahead of him. Uh, When he gets to Babylon, just outside of the city, he'll engage in what he doesn't know is his third and final battle in the conquest of Persia, the Battle of Gaugamela. Gaugamela may well be the largest battle in the history of the ancient world. The Persian emperor Darius puts forward 250,000 men, as the sources tell us. Was that totally feasible? Maybe. But we do have to go by what they say. Alexander was probably able to muster about 50,000. But remember, these are not 50,000 nobodies. These are very much 50,000 somebodies, professional soldiers. Despite the enormous manpower of the Persian army, there's simply no match for Alexander the Great. He defeats the Persians at Gaugamela, which effectively leaves all of the heart of the Persian world. Again, modern Iran, open for the taking. Alexander the Great will do just that. He'll not only capture the capital city of Persepolis, but he'll actually execute personally the Persian emperor. Upon doing so, his soldiers have their greatest victory, maybe, in Greek history, and they expect to celebrate in Greek ways. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. Alexander falls uh, deeper into his trance, deeper into his um, enthrallment with foreign lands, and he declares himself... Not the new emperor of a Greek empire, but the new emperor of Persia. He wears the garb of a Persian emperor. He even takes a Persian wife, Roxana. And here we see what many believe to be the beginning of the end of maybe the most powerful man to have ever lived, at least in his own mind. He not only marries a Persian woman, he has a Persian wedding, and they have a child. He's half Greek, and he's half Persian. Alexander wants this to be the future king of Greece. The problem is, there's almost no way that a person who is only half Greek would ever be allowed to assume that position. Alexander does know this, but he views it as a technicality that's trivial. He'll soon see it's no such thing. He not only, again, marries a woman from a foreign culture, but he actually orders his men to do so as well. And this begins to really shake the foundations of power that keep Alexander where he is. There's a lot of questions back home in Greece. Where is Alexander? When will he be back? They hear about these amazing achievements. They hear these pronouncements about battles. They have coins minted after every major battle. But people in Greece begin to wonder, is this really in the best interest of Greece to have their leader, their king, their generalissimo, traipsing around the world with their soldiers, Conquering foreign lands, but doing very little for them back home, rumblings begin to occur that there might be someone trying to overthrow Alexander back home. So Alexander's men begin to grow very weary of his, uh, I think, insatiable desire to uh, acquire new, uh, new information about cultures. We can call it a novel fusion of Greek culture and foreign culture. They have to divorce their own wives to marry new ones upon his orders. But there also becomes this very real sense in Alexander's mind uh, that the further he gets from Greece, the less control he has back home. And you can imagine that paranoia begins to really fester in his mind. Uh, Remember, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't really out to get you. I mean, this guy will put Richard Nixon to shame. Alexander becomes very skeptical of the people around him. Trusted advisors, mind you, that were around him. Uh, there are some instances where he even murders people that have been his closest confidant uh, for years uh, leading up to this campaign, one of them being his male lover. Um, again, I should stress homosexuality was never necessarily a taboo in ancient Greece. It was very much a part of everyday life, so much so that very few even wrote about it or talked about it. But it was not uncommon for soldiers to engage in sexual activities with each other on the eve of battle. Uh you can imagine they probably cut that from the movie 300, but uh, the night before the Battle of Thermopylae would have been a pretty wild scene, I imagine. At any rate, Alexander, again, is pulling his own brain trust apart at the seams. There's suspicion amongst his men, and he's probably equally suspicious of them. But that's not going to stop Alexander. Alexander had big dreams, not just to conquer Persia, he did that, but to go beyond. He wants to conquer the world. And this begins, I think, the ultimate decline of Alexander's conquest. Alexander will go on to push his men into places like Afghanistan, places like Kazakhstan, places like what was called Bactria, today uh, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, parts of Central Asia. And he'll go all the way to India. I mean, what stops Alexander the Great effectively uh, are the Himalayas. That's pretty amazing considering he's coming from Greece. But imagine the different cultures he's seen along the way. Imagine the different foods he's eaten, the different people he's seen, the different religions he's experienced. All of these are having a very large impact on Alexander's psyche because he almost replaces one new uh, obsession or fetish with another. And again, his army has to follow suit. There will be instances in Persia where he'll fire or, uh, or, or uh, eliminate large parts of his Greek army for uh, contemporary or local uh, militia. Uh, Again, this does not sit well. So Alexander the Great has a lot of things to contend with. One of them is novel fusion of culture. The other is an open-ended campaign. When will this end? Alexander the Great will take his men into the rainforest of India. And when he gets there, he finds an amazing surprise. A local king named Porus waiting for him. Now, Alexander the Great has a pretty impressive army. Long spears, chariots, horses that are very good at what they do. But he experiences something in India he's never seen before from Porus. And again, Porus is just using what geography gives him, the blessings of geography. I talk about it a lot. He uses war elephants. We call this the Battle of Hydaspes River. But in the Battle of Hydaspes River, Alexander the Great faces down with a rumbling, stumbling herd of elephants. Uh, Elephants with soldiers on their backs, that are ready to fight and prepared to fight. And elephants are very vicious territorial creatures. And Alexander is amazed at what he sees. Now, I want you to imagine that. You have elephants literally trampling his Greek soldiers to death at Hydaspes River in India. And all Alexander can do is talk about the amazement he has at these war elephants, how wonderful they are, how powerful they are. Here's the same old tricks yet again in the minds of his men. Enough of this, Alexander. We have a battle to win or we'll all be killed. Alexander's army will beat King Porus's army at Hydaspes River. But again, the the obsession, the fascination with the strange foreign land begins to take over. Back home in Greece, there are still coins minted uh, that will celebrate the battle of, of Hydaspes River. On one side is Alexander's head. On the other side is Porus's war elephants. I mean, he's seeing parts of the world and unifying parts of the world that nobody's seen before. And he wants more. Again, what stops him? two things. one uh, will be of his own doing and one of Mother Nature. Uh, Mother Nature will provide the Himalaya mountains. He probably would have continued. He wanted to push through in through the snow. Uh, his men said absolutely positively not. They said we've marched with you for years. We've marched with you despite the fact that in some cases you are half of our age. You have success, there's no doubt. but we want to go home. We haven't seen our families. You yourself have no idea when this ends. I mean, I firmly believe that Alexander would have marched all the way to to China if he could have. He would have crossed the Sea of Japan uh, if he could have, but his men weren't going to do it. They'll return home. Alexander will come to rest in Babylon, and this is where the story becomes really, really fascinating. Alexander, as the oracle in Egypt predicted, would never see home again. But to him, maybe home was where he made it. In the year 323, This is now 11 years after he began his march. Alexander the Great, in Babylon, in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar II, will die. Imagine, that's it. The man is 33 years old. In 33 years, really, in in maybe you could say 11 years, he's done more than almost any human being alive to shape the world around him, and he dies. The question is why? Well, we know it takes between 11 and 12 days for Alexander to die, and his death is very long and very torturous. It seems to be from natural causes. But there always is that idea, that question, lingering in the back of minds of historians. Was he poisoned to death? There's a few ways to look at this. Poisoning was an option, of course. We know his men were growing to despise him. We know that he certainly killed his share of his own men out of paranoia. Poisoning him would make a lot of sense. It would end the campaign and take them home. Issue is, however, the length of time it took him to die. 11, 12 days, poisons typically do not take that long to to act in the ancient world. Certainly not one that would have been readily available to his men. So the question is, what really kills him? Again, history doesn't necessarily uh, have cinematic endings most of the time. The real world does step in. And there is some very real wonderment. Uh, as to whether Alexander the Death, in the rainforest of India perhaps, was bitten by a mosquito. Uh, Maybe he contracted malaria. Maybe he contracted yellow fever. Maybe that's what killed him. Uh, It is pretty clear from the last seven days of his life in bed in Babylon, his fever was uh, outrageously high. And this would make a lot of sense. Now again, there's a lot of intrigue involving assassination, I think. Uh, But I think we have to be very careful with that. Uh, because if the evidence isn't there, and he very well could have been, but again, the evidence isn't there, one of the major problems in the ancient world, we have to assume that perhaps he died of other causes, and certainly a natural death from a disease contracted by, say, a mosquito in the rainforest was possible. But what we see is Alexander is dead. His son, to be birthed by Roxana, uh, has not been born yet. He has no male heir. People in Greece are beginning to discover that he may not be coming back. Some sources speculate, when, they, when asked who should the heir be, Alexander simply replied, to the strongest. Hard to say, based on what's going to happen. But one thing is for certain, the most powerful emperor who's ever lived, who's built the largest empire in world history, faster than anyone else at the time, is gone. Who will take over? Well, as you can imagine, in a case like this, the military and the commanding generals closest to Alexander are going to play the most prominent role. And they will effectively, amongst three different generals, divide his empire up. No one man can rule the way he did, if he ruled well at all. Uh, The Antigonids, we'll call them, will take all of Greece. The Seleucids will take all of what we can call Asian Persia. And the Ptolemaic dynasty will take over. Uh, Egypt. Amongst these Greek rulers, very famous woman named Cleopatra. Maybe we'll visit her later in the season. But this is the end of Alexander. Now, again, one of the things we talked about is not only who they were and what they did, but why they're important. And again, this is not a biographical sketch in this episode, but more placing these people in context. Why are they so important? Well, Alexander's conquest paved the way for Greekness, Greek culture, to take over the world as they know it but was originally Persian, after Alexander largely, sort of becomes covered with what one of my dear professors, Carlos White, used to call a veneer of Greekness. And I love that. He's a great guy. Uh, But a veneer of Greekness is a really good way of thinking of it. Again, it's not Greek through and through, but there's sort of an outer candy shell of Greekness put over everything. He really does change the world in that regard. I mean, for 500 years after Alexander's death in India, there will be uh, Hindu sculptures done in a Greek style. There will be Greek columns found in Afghanistan. If any of you are returning veterans from the war in Afghanistan, uh, you may have seen, believe it or not, there are still forts built by Alexander's army standing in Afghanistan largely because many of these places are untouched by the modern world, and there they remain. These images are online. Uh, They are unbelievable, but they're there. Greekness is everywhere. Look at the larger Near East, and it's Greekness. I mean, there's a reason that uh, when the Bible is written, the New Testament of the Bible, it will be written not in Aramaic or Hebrew, but Koine Greek. Uh, It's a legacy of Alexander. Throughout most of this region, Greek becomes sort of what we can call a lingua franca of the region. Not the primary language, but a language that everybody understands. Uh, This is a result of Alexander. Uh, Greeks will rule Egypt. Greeks will rule Persia. uh, Greeks will rule Greece. And they will be eventually conquered by the Roman Empire, and that's a whole different story. Uh, But this is a legacy of Alexander. This, again, this Greekness, this spreading of the Greek worldview. But amazingly, most of it happens after he dies. Something to think about. Now, why is Alexander still relevant? Well, there's a few things you can look at. I mean, one of the most uh, sort of on the face of them is the fact that Alexander will bring to Europe, really for the first time, a sense of absolute monarchy. That's a very Persian ideal. And obviously, and we'll see this moving forward, absolute monarchy sort of becomes a hallmark of Europe. I mean, that's a very obvious thing. But there's much more than that. Uh, it's the legacy of conquest. It's a symbol of uh, masculinity. I mean, everyone who wants to conquer the world after him, from Napoleon to Adolf Hitler, to emperors of Rome, uh, will claim to be the next Alexander. And I think there's something to that. I think there's more than the simple history there. I think there's a symbolism there. I think it's a powerful one uh, to see a man revered literally uh, over thousands of square miles by probably millions of people. So it's an interesting idea. He's an interesting figure. There's no doubt that the paths that he blazes in the 4th century BCE will lead to a much larger Roman world. I think, in the success of that world, uh, and also lead to, again, the modern rise of our own. But it's an interesting study, and I think a really great place to start the season, because now you get a sense of what we're trying to do here. We're going to cross uh, timelines. We're going to cross eras. Again, I don't want to necessarily do a serialized discussion as we have in seasons one, two, and three. I want to leave it a little more open, because I think there's a lot of valuable discussion to be had. Now, normally at this point, I would say on the next episode, we'll talk about this or that. But the reality is we have more ways of communicating now than ever before. So get on Twitter, get on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brady J. Get on bradykreitzer.com or wartimepodcast.com and send me an email. Let me know who you want to discuss next week. We're doing this in real time, so feedback is appreciated. So next week, you decide. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is wartime.